0: school was canceled today we're recording this on friday january 7th and uh yeah i went for a walk before i came into the office and there was a bunch of people sledding on the on the hill at unity and it just looked really really awesome
1: it's the first snow of january so it's pretty exciting
0: we already got a couple of of things that i'm excited about being able to put into next uh, week's paper one i won't spoil but someone sent us an animal picture Ooh. that was pretty cool today. I also, <laughs> up at Unity Hill, got a picture of, of the town. I gotta say, I was among the downtown neighbors who was kind of irked to see the uh, the trees cut down last year along the, the hillside there at the park, mm-hmm. but standing there and looking at downtown Turners, you know, with a uh, dusting of snow on it, man, we live in a really beautiful town, and it's a really striking view there now coming into it.
1: So I look forward to the photos in next week's paper oh yeah <laughs> welcome to the montague reporter podcast my name is sarah Brown Anton. i'm the host and producer and we have mike jackson with us who is the managing editor of the montague reporter newspaper hi mike
0: hi sarah thanks for doing the podcast i really enjoyed the bonus episode that just came out about the, the redaction project, that's uh, a good listen. If, if listeners have skipped that one, <laughs> I'd recommend it.
1: It was a really fun conversation, and I think the funnest part was at the end when Jay and Charlotte were just telling me about kind of the bizarre police log highlights that they've been able to read.
0: Yes, as soon as Jay said that they had a best ever entry, I had a guess as to which one it is. It's <laughs> one, of, one of my all-time favorites too
1: go give it a lesson. It's a good one. Okay, so let's start with the happier story that ran on A1 in this week's January 6th, 2022 edition. There are four proposals to reuse the old highway garage that's currently owned by the town of Montague, Um, and they're all laid out in a fairly detailed way in the story that Jeff Singleton and you wrote so I was hoping that we could kind of lay it out for listeners, the four possible scenarios.
0: Yeah, um, I got to say we could have gotten this news a little earlier. The The bid opening was a few weeks um, ago in December, but uh, it went before the Capital Improvements Committee this week because they've been appointed to kind of be the screening committee to to screen proposals and make a recommendation to the select board about them. So uh, we got a real good presentation and, and some of these people discussing them. They haven't made any decisions yet, so it's like a A story about an open process Mm -hmm. right now.
1: Yeah, and I I kind of like that the paper is being so proactive about it that we get to hear about the whole process kind of from here on out.
0: Right. There there was a point um, early on in my involvement in the paper when Chris or Lasana was editor-in-chief and I was the the managing editor uh, backseat driving and the two of us at one point looked at you know the past maybe months worth of front pages and we just realized that we kept taking photographs of buildings and putting <laughs> them on the paper and we're like maybe this isn't the most interesting thing so it's funny our our a1 this week you know it's just a photo of a building i try to not do that anymore like you know three different photographs of, of the exteriors of buildings <laughs> but it's a Partly, you know, one of the main themes of, um, of this town being a place where there, there was so much activity that happened that used more space before and dealing with the, the legacy of that decline, dealing with a lot of abandoned buildings and mm-hmm. maybe more ideas about how they could be reused than there is capital to, to put those ideas into practice. So, you know, this is a tension that we're seeing right now really acutely over the Fair and Care Center in Montague City, which... Mm-hmm. Was in use up until very recently, and I think that there's a lot of shock and surprise in, in some sections of the community that the nonprofit that owns it um, is is planning to demolish it. We say it would be 25 million dollars to get it up to code, and you know, the responsible thing to do would be to knock it down. And we we're also looking at the, the Strathmore complex, um, the the mills that the town owns between the the river and the canal. A uh, section of that complex is slated for for demolition. So this is. A big background anxiety of everyone who's kind of involved in civic life in town. It's like, oh no, another building. So, I mm-hmm. have apartment, got a nice new building up on the hill, but you know, oh no, another building. Um, so, that's all the setup. And uh, that's why it's such a happy story that there's like four proposals. And my reading of them, I think, just like everyone on the committee, was like, any one of these proposals could actually be, be viable.
1: Yeah, it did seem like a couple of favorites were starting to emerge from the four proposals. But we don't really know what's going to happen from here on out because they haven't chosen one.
0: Yeah. Do you want me to run through them, actually?
1: I would love that because I just read this article last night and I was like, oh, this is really fun to think about.
0: Yeah. And I think that they kind of also represent a diversity of what the business is. I'll just run through them in the same order as, as the committee read them and our article wrote it. One came from Chris Kucher, who's the president of Kutcher Brothers Painting. He's like a third generation owner of that company and owns a bunch of property downtown. And he owns already a lot of the, the buildings down near the highway garage. He owns the warehouse next door as the main base of his own businesses operations and then a lot of those little buildings where Simon Stamps is and brick and feather. Those are all all his buildings. So it's kind of like if this was a monopoly board, you know, it'd be like getting the, the last one on the on the one of the colored rows or something. He's proven he could do it. He would put it to productive use, I would imagine. The the committee sounded like that was also their take, but it just wasn't nearly as detailed as some of the other proposals. So I think their interest was looking a little more excitedly at some of the other ones than that. Second one came from New England Wound Care. This is, you know, a medical company. It's owned by uh, this guy, Dr. Sohail Wayan, and I'm not sure if I'm saying his name properly. So, Dr. Wayan, if you're you're listening, I apologize. Uh, Let me know. This one was... Especially interesting because he's already got a, a big building project on his plate, the Cumbies Building, which is that little building you know, on the same lawn as the Discovery Center that's been empty for a good while.
1: Across Avenue A from Town Hall.
0: Yep, or kind of across from the Glen, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The pr- plan there is to knock it down and, and build something like the large, beautiful building that was once there. The initial plans were, were really modeled after it, this big four-story building. This year didn't look like enough financing was going to come through to do that, and so the plans have been kind of scaled back. There are going to be apartments on the top couple floors, and those have been kind of knocked off. So they're looking at building like a two story mostly commercial building in my understanding there and Mm -hmm. apparently could be on track to to breaking ground this year. You know, in in town, um, that little structure is just called the Cumbies Building because it it was a Cumberland Farms up until the mid-80s when it was taken by eminent domain by the town. 35 years later, um, it's still the Cumbies Building and I love calling it that building. It's kind of like a, a, a nod to usage certainly, but it would also kind of like a little bit of an inside joke. Assuming that this building gets built, I kind of want to like call it like the building that's where the Cumbies used to be. (laughs) His plan for the highway building is first to move two of his companies in there more immediately for a little while before that other building is done and then move those folks over and then redo the building to be not a cannabis, <laughs> it was emphasized, but a growing facility, like an indoor facility for growing microgreens and herbs and have it on solar power. Cool. You know, I think that there was a lot of interest in that and also a lot of curiosity or concern or due diligence about the whole plan to, to juggle those two projects. The third proposal came in from Nova Real Estate, which is the same two Principles as uh, Nova Motorcycles and Turners. Nova's got a good thing going, it seems like. They're in the former Eagle Automotive Garage, depending on when you got to town. You know, I I know people who still call it the Williams Garage. So they're in that building on the end of Second Street that's right by what's now the skate park. And, you know, they have a vintage motorcycle repair place. There's a lot of kind of like surrounding outbuildings there that they own. And They've been renting that out and kind of have essentially like a little incubator business zone going. You know, creative small businesses, low overhead. It's kind of like getting to be the fun part of town. (laughs) Nova has also, you know, now owns that lot that's across from them over there and are planning to build a building there. And have it be kind of like mixed of what they're already doing, and then a little bit more like maybe light manufacturing stuff. So that would be kind of like their second building, and then the highway garage. They're basically saying, we want to keep scaling up this concept even beyond that. They had some letters of interest from tenants. And they really, you know, had their ducks already getting lined up over what it might look like. You know, they were calling it like Novus Campus, which you know is a is a big word for a small town, and. I think that there's a lot of questions the committee seemed to have about that. You know, I think that there's also questions about if you're already doing this other project, how would they fit together? Maybe one of the differences being that said other project isn't on a town-owned property. Mm-hmm. And then rounding out the whole thing, Powertown Properties, which is Dave LaRue. He is a landlord, owns a bunch of properties in the area, has a couple of businesses, including a coffee roaster, in that former Chick's Garage building on 3rd on Street. He was talking about moving his coffee operation over there, changing one of the outbuildings so it would be kind of like a snack parlor kind of thing, um, facing the bike path, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Nova's been doing a similar thing over out of their building. They've got a snack parlor going out of a window on the side, so it's a cool model. He was talking about putting vintage cars in there and having a car museum, car shows, a bike parade. Music, stuff like that. His proposal was long. It didn't seem to grab the committee members' attention that I heard as much as the new care or Nova proposals, but everyone talked about it like we've got four things that look like any of them could work.
1: Mm -hmm. So many ideas and positive possibilities, I guess, for that building. Does it seem like this building is in reasonably good shape? Is that why it has attracted these four proposals?
0: I would assume so. I haven't been in there except to go in and pick up my recycle bins or trash stickers or whatever back when it was the, the highway garage. The town had put it out under an RFP like the last year, I guess, maybe even earlier than that, and didn't get any hits. They did a walkthrough with a bunch of interested people. But the problem at that point was that they were trying to put it out before doing what's called a phase two environmental assessment mm-hmm. to look whether it's safe and clean or if there's going to need to be, like, substantial investment in the cleanup. You know, I talked to, I think, at least one person at the time who was interested and was, you know, mad that they were trying to do that. And I remember someone wrote a letter in our paper saying, come on, the town should really do its its side of things. And I don't know. I mean, I think it, it kind of made sense, like, you know, put it out and say, you know, you'd have to do this. But does anyone want to? So that, you know, if there was someone who wanted to do it, it wouldn't have to be on, on the public dime. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't get any bites and did an assessment. It's clean, clean bill of health. Certainly all these people have been in it and think it's viable enough for a rebuild for whatever they want to do.
1: Just a little bit more information about the building. It's 11,250 square feet. So very large It currently contains offices, a laundry room, several small car garages and one large multi-bay garage. And it sits on 0.87 acres. So almost an acre.
0: Well, now you just spoiled the rest of the article.
1: (laughs) So yeah, readers can check it out. There's a lot more information in the actual article.
0: This is like such our bread and butter news. And, Mm. you know, I'm sorry if like this is like the boringest thing for some people. But like, (laughs) well, people actually want to do a thing with the building. And some of the proposals are things that could really like affect how the neighborhood feels. As someone who lives here, these things end up being really, really something important to watch. And... As someone trying to put out a newspaper, I like that there's a good meaty process that people are wading through trying to make these decisions that, that, you know, we can spill more ink trying to follow over the next weeks and months and, you know, potentially years.
1: I think it would be good to talk about the pandemic, since you did have this two-line graph on A1, the first page of the newspaper. With the headline, Record Cases, Hospitalizations. Yep. (laughs) Do you want to talk about what it depicts?
0: What's pertinent here is that when cases started going up dramatically in November, you know, I started putting those graphs in the paper, putting them in more prominent spots so that people would see them and... That's been kind of my practice of, like, well, what, what does a newspaper do? You know, like, if there's people who want to modulate the level of risk that they want to take in their behavior, if they want to do that based on a feedback of how much of this thing is out circulating. So... When it goes up as kind of like part of society's little, little feedback system, it's our responsibility to, you know, signal that like, hey, hey, heads up, you know, it's going up. Maybe if it's really going up, you know, I put it on the front page. So someone's just like in the gas station and sees it on the news rack. They're like, oh, man, uh, yeah, I didn't realize that. OK, well, I guess that's good to know. And then in November, you know, I got some pushback because people are like, you're really like doing people a disservice by just reporting on, on the case count. This is a different situation. People are vaccinated. Um, this is mild. This isn't you know going to lead to hospitalizations or deaths. So I took that seriously. We are in a different situation. Uh, over the break, I rolled up my sleeves and, and went and accessed all of the data that Baystate has put out nearly daily and put that all into into my big spreadsheet. It's kind of an apples and oranges thing because I've been printing like how many cases there are each week in Franklin County of COVID. And then this other set of data is like how many patients are being treated for COVID in Bay State Health System, which, you know, the big hospitals in Springfield. And then they've got these three kind of outlying things. One of them is Bay State, Franklin, and Greenfield. There's also Cooley Dickinson Hospital in Northampton. There's other hospitals, you know, in in Western Mass. But when people are, are seriously sick in Greenfield, you know, if they're intubated, they get put on an ambulance and driven down to Springfield. So it's kind of one pool. That number, although it was first lagging behind this Omicron-related spike, has now also been rising dramatically. Three weeks ago, mid-December, when Baystate was dealing with 128 patients with COVID lying in, in their beds, the president of, of Baystate Health came out publicly and said, you know, we're over capacity. This is like a crisis." And, really was calling for, for support from the state. Governor has mobilized the National Guard. That was three weeks ago. In three weeks that case count has spiked up to two hundred fifty seven. So it's it's doubled. They have all this expanded capacity down there now. They have this whole outdoor triage thing set up and but I glance at today's since I put the paper out and it's still going up. The rate of hospitalization is lower, but okay. <laughs> That's the news. And now we're getting into, like, Mike Jackson's, like, soapbox. like If the point of flattening the curve is so that we don't crowd out any other medical care from our healthcare system, we are still at the point now where we need to do that. So folks who are like, this is milder, everyone's going to get it, I'm vaccinated so I won't get it that bad, whatever, I'm just going to get it. I'm going to be sick for a week, I'll be fine. That's fine, but, like, if we're collectively making that decision, we are, like, collectively. Effectively disabling our entire like medical response system by doing that at the, at the rate that we currently are. So, you know, I know people are taking things seriously. I know a lot of people have also made a decision to live their lives. I think we should just be clear that the effects of it are, are that that second line is going up and that there's a third line that just in terms of sheer numbers is also going to be going up soon.
1: The third line being deaths?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that the deaths relative to how many people are being hospitalized has been low is that we have better treatment for people who are seriously sick, you know, and this thing moves into the lower respiratory system and really become systemic and get some people's blood and, and you know, I'm not a doctor. We have so much more than we had a year ago to deal with that and treat it and save people's lives. And that's like really great. <laughs> like that's part of like the, the positive story of this pandemic is, is, you know, how quickly it's it's moving our medical expertise forward as a society. And and that's gonna end up having spillover repercussions to all kinds of therapeutics for other diseases, right? But like not if the hospitals are full. You can't count on that factor anymore if, if you just literally can't get a hospital bed for someone who's seriously sick. Deaths in Franklin County attributed to COVID and the official count have been steadily one a week and last week went up to four. So we we don't want that to go up or I don't want it to go up. I mean, I guess that's like biased opinion or something, but like, yeah, I don't want people to die who don't have to die.
1: I think anyone would agree with that. I was also hoping we could talk about the other aspect of the way towns are dealing with COVID, which is trying to buy rapid tests. I know Montague is doing it. Leverett is trying to do it. And it just seems utterly confusing for everyone involved.
0: Everything shifted to to testing, and especially rapid testing. And then all of a sudden, there's you know a serious shortage of, of commercially available rapid tests and Part of that is there's big government requisitions, but you know, uh, the whole thing is a mess.
1: Yeah, it's a complete mess. <laughs> and like town administrators don't know how much the tests cost or the format that they will come in. One person said that if they're ordering 500 tests, they don't know whether it's going to be like individually packaged 500 tests or like one big package of 500 tests that are like not easy to distribute
0: yeah they're still doing you know pcr testing over at at gcc i haven't been over there recently i've heard anecdotally the line is getting longer which makes sense
1: yeah you can still get in and out in 20 minutes
0: good to know i (laughs) heard heard a couple complaints but you know
1: i mean i'm sure those complaints are legitimate but i'm also like really grateful to have free testing available Close to home.
0: Yeah. It'd be nice if everyone has access to these tests. You know, I ordered some for pretty cheap in December, I think right before the, the real demand. <laughs> this is the benefit of being a newspaper editor and staring at these lines going up um, on my screen. I think right before the demand crunch happened and mm. you know, got it. And then I think like a day later, they were not available anymore online. But the federal government had a deal with Kroger's and Walmart to sell BinX Now two packs for $14. Listeners can fact check this, but I've heard that, you know, it costs roughly 80 cents to manufacture these tests. And both of those companies have very extensive distribution logistics networks. So they had a deal for a period of time to not price gouge and that expired this week. So Kroger's went up immediately from 14 to like 24 bucks for those. And people are selling them for like $70 on eBay.
1: (laughs) Are you serious?
0: yeah i have some very ultra feelings about price gouging ultra yeah in terms of what the consequences should be but i think that it's the equivalent of war profiteering Mm -hmm. in in my book but uh that's what we got Mm -hmm. and then supplemented with free ones that come down through the federal to the state to the municipal governments which is like going to be such a complicated system to to figure out
1: mike i'm hoping you have a light and funny non-sequitur i'm sure you do right you usually do
0: well i wrote this on the paper if anyone wants to get involved in the Montague reporter uh, selling ads or keeping track of what ads we've sold the person who's been volunteering their time to help with that has said hey if someone else wants to do it um they can
1: the person is me listeners that would be me i'm not really a good salesperson please join (laughs) join us
0: Well, first of all, support the Montague Reporter advertisers. They're pretty much all doing it just as their way to ensure that we have a a paper in Mm -hmm. our community. Ads are still one of the uh, important legs of the stool here at the Montague Reporter.
1: The other two legs being...
0: You know, subscription and donation. Mm -hmm. So if someone wants to help us out on that front, get involved. Give us a call.
1: It's really fun. You get to learn all about how the paper works... It helps if you are a graphic designer, which I am not.
0: But you don't have to be at all. No. There's different parts of the job. You know, if someone just wants to make some calls and, and say, what, do you want to advertise them on your border? Or knock on some doors? That would be a huge help this year. Yes. Do you have any non secreters
1: Well, I noticed that the science page is back. Uh, I'm very excited about it. And I happen to know the person who wrote it, Spencer Shorky. So I just wanted to shout that out. And Spencer, if you're listening to this, I will be in touch. We should do an episode of the podcast. Anyway, go check that science page out. And Mike, is there anything you want to add about that? Just
0: thanks to Spencer. We've always got people who... Are moving on to other projects. Shout out to Lisa McLaughlin, who for five years, at least, maybe even six years, did you know a monthly science page. Originally, Nina Rossi, our features editor, had the idea and put a little note in the paper, "Hey, if anyone wants to be our science editor and do a monthly page." And Lisa um, stepped up, and her page, Nature Culture, you know, ran every month for yeah, like five years. She's uh, going on to greener pastures, as people should. <laughs> <laughs> when they're ready to we've had a gap of a couple of months we thought about doing other other monthly pages but did end up having spencer so interested in, in giving a science page a shot so i'm excited you know there's some other columnists who've tendered resignations this year trish crapo stopped doing the art beat and mm-hmm. right now just looking for multiple writers to do art coverage and if someone wants to do a real regular column that can emerge too very flexible down here anyone who really wants to to write stuff that's interesting we'll we'll find a way to make it work
1: and don't worry if you want to write for the reporter you are not obligated to come on the podcast yes but you may be asked
0: it's got a multi-level media empire here Thank you for listening to the Montague Reporter podcast.
1: Thank you to Stella Silbert, who edits the podcast.
0: We would love it if you, our listeners, would review the
1: podcast
0: on whichever platform you are hearing us, and if you would tell friends about it.
1: You can also support the Montague Reporter newspaper by reading, subscribing, and donating or advertising
0: the four legs of the stool subscription donation advertising and reading thanks to blue dot sessions for the music and
1: thanks to greenfield community television for technical support We will have
0: more podcast episodes soon so if you are withering away in isolation right now you have this to look forward to